Welcome to the Fredcast for the week of November 19th, 2012. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. In this episode of the Fredcast, how you can help Sandy victims, Interbike announcing the possibility that you might be able to attend their show, a couple of product recalls, bike sharing coming to San Diego, and some updates on some news stories we've talked about in the past. Plus, how you can get swag into your mailbox and an interview with Coach Joe Friel. All that and more on this week's episode of the Fredcast. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike hammer, just a little bit harder because here comes your Fredcast. Hello, Freds. Welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast. Fredcast, who's he? Where's David been? Well, a couple of things. Number one, since Interbike, I have been on nonstop business travel. As a good friend of mine said to me recently on Facebook, hey, David, you're achieving status on the airline the hard way by just traveling back and forth across the United States and Canada instead of doing all those international trips. But it has had me... Whew, just incredibly busy. So my apologies. Plus, I got to be honest, I have been decompressing from all this doping stuff. Uh, You know, I went back and I listened to the first episode of the Fredcast. And one of the things that I said in that episode was, I'm going to do news and not just racing news. You know what? I'm probably going to be doing a little bit less racing news because, well, quite frankly, I've lost quite a bit of confidence in the professional racing scene, both in the racers, a lot of these heroes that we've heard from over the last few weeks who, well, let's face it, they're dopers and not heroes at all. Uh, And also in the infrastructure uh, in cycling from, uh, well, particularly the UCI. Uh, I'm just really disappointed in what they're doing. And quite frankly, a lot of my friends and family who are not cyclists who have asked me about it in the last couple of weeks, you know, I've mentioned to them that for many years, in some ways, professional cycling has been kind of similar to professional wrestling. And so that's been real disappointing. So I just want to get back more to the soul of cycling. As a matter of fact, in the next show, I'm going to talk to you about a book that I read that really talks more about the soul of cycling than than all this racing and doping stuff that we're all tired of anyway. So look for that coming up, but we've got a great show for you this week and let's get right into it. But before we do, you know I would be remiss if I didn't thank our wonderful show sponsor. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you why later. Some of this show was was inspired by them, specifically the, the interview with Coach Joe Friel. But I would be remiss if I didn't thank Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash thefredcast. I've told you a million times now how Jensen USA is the place where you're going to find a great selection of products at some incomparable prices with some of the best customer service in the bicycle industry. Now, first of all, again, it's Thanksgiving week here in the United States. I know our Canadian friends celebrated Thanksgiving last month, but for us, uh, for many Americans, 
It's not just about being thankful. Unfortunately, it's also about consumerism and what we call Black Friday. And Jensen USA is going to have some great Black Friday deals. So make sure you go to jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast on Friday and take advantage of their Black Friday deals. But in the meantime, in continuing through Black Friday, a couple of deals that I wanted to tell you about that I thought were really great. First of all, they are having a huge clearance on Shimano items, cranks, derailers, shifters, brakes, cassettes, you name it, up to 80%. Don't rewind, you heard it correctly, up to 80% off suggested retail price. Some, Some really great prices. Want to talk about some great prices? How about a Diamondback Race Carbon 2012 road bike? Regularly $2,100, now $1,399. Get them while they last. And this one's incredible. A $6,000 Fuji DI2 road bike. Full bike. Regularly $6,000, now $3,999. This is the bike that won the 2011 Vuelta. Get this bike under you for the next season at a great price at jensenusa.com slash thefredcast. Go ahead and check them out by going to that URL or by going to thefredcast.com and clicking the Jensen USA link on the right-hand side of the page. As always, got to thank jensenusa.com for their support of the Fredcast, and I have to thank you for your support of Jensen USA. Well, topping the news this week is, well, it's something sad that happened on the East Coast of the United States, and if you were affected by it. Uh, uh, Our hearts and our thoughts and prayers go out to you and to your family. And of course, I'm talking about Superstorm Sandy. Uh, For those of you who may not live in the United States and may not be familiar, Superstorm Sandy was a hurricane that traveled up the east coast of the United States and converged with a couple of other low-pressure systems to pummel uh, the eastern seaboard uh, and specifically the New York and New Jersey area. Now, uh, a lot of people lost their homes, and a lot of people were devastated by the effects of Superstorm Sandy. Uh, there were some positive effects in that, uh, uh, at least according to Caroline Sampanaro, the director of bicycle advocacy at the Transportation Alternatives in the city of New York. The city saw a huge increase uh, in people getting on bikes. Uh, she was reported as saying that the number of bike commuters uh, tripled from about 10,000 daily bike commuters to about 30,000 daily bike commuters. And that's great. But again, a lot of people were devastated, losing homes and property. And and it was just a really awful situation that occurred. And a group involved in cycling has organized to give you an opportunity to show your support and to provide financial assistance to those who were affected by Superstorm Sandy. Specifically, uh, the folks who put on the Red Hook Criterium in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Red Hook have teamed up with Castelli uh, and have created a jersey, a benefit jersey, to help raise funds for Red Hook's Recovery. Now, it was designed by Jonah Burns, and the jerseys are going to be sold exclusively on the site that I've linked to in the show notes only until December 1st. They'll then produce the correct amount of jerseys uh, that Castelli is donating uh, to the recovery effort and then get them out somewhere in mid-January. All profits from the jerseys are going to be split 
between the Red Hook Initiative and Restore Red Hook. Now, the Red Hook Initiative is an established community center, uh, and they are operating as a critical organizer of relief efforts in the area. And so I think that uh, you know, there's a great way to show your support. It's a great-looking jersey, uh, and you can help people who were affected by Superstorm St- uh, Sandy. So go ahead and check it out. I've got a link in the show notes. Help people. It's uh, just a, a great way for cyclists to be able to give back to the community. As you can imagine, doing this show, I get a lot of uh, press releases in my email box and in my postal mailbox. Uh, and one I received yesterday is one that I think a lot of you are going to be very intrigued to hear the results of. This one came from Interbike. Uh, and specifically what it said is that this coming Monday, November the 26th, Interbike is going to be holding a news conference via telephone to announce what they're calling the details behind a new initiative to allow bicycle enthusiasts, that's you, access to the longtime business-to-business only trade show. Now, it says access for bicycle enthusiasts will be granted through a new retailer invitation program, and the details of that program are going to be announced on this conference call on Monday, November 26th. What's the upshot of all of this? Well, If you're friends with your local bike dealer, it sounds like you may have the opportunity to be invited to attend the Interbike Trade Show perhaps as early as September 2013. Now, the next Interbike Trade Show, uh, well, outdoor demo is September 16th through 17th, 2013, and then the actual Interbike Indoor Expo is September 18th through 20th, and uh, I think as I've reported here, and I know I've reported on the spokesman, there has been a venue change. They're moving from the Sands Expo and Convention Center uh, to the Mandalay Bay Convention Center all the way on the end uh, of uh, the southern end of the Las Vegas Strip. So I'll keep you posted on this, but it sounds like something that consumers, all of us, have been clamoring for for years may be coming to fruition. Now, the rumors that I'm hearing uh, are that it may just be the last day, September 20th, Friday, only. Typically at trade shows, those are the least uh, well-attended, if I put that right, days uh, at trade shows, the kinds of days where people say you could, you know, you could, you could bowl in the aisles of trade shows. So this may be a way to keep the aisles busy while uh, not hindering the actual business that goes on at the show between uh, dealers and distributors and manufacturers and the media and everyone else. So stay tuned. Uh, As soon as I've got some details, I'll definitely tweet them out and talk about them on the next episode of the Fredcast. This next story has been around a little while, but it's something that I wanted to bring to you because it's about a product that I have endorsed on this show in the past, and that's specifically Gore Ride-On Cables. Now, if you've got Gore Ride-On Cables on your bike, you know uh, how smooth your shifting and braking can be, even in the most adverse conditions. And that's because of the specific membrane that gets impregnated onto the cables and allows them to to move uh, in, well, I can't say friction-free, but a lower friction way within the housing. I was sad to learn, uh, well, it's well over a month ago now, maybe two, that uh, Gore, uh, the parent company of Ride-On Cables, announced that they will be leaving the bicycle industry by the end of the year. 
Uh, and that's uh, that's really sad. That means that if you love Gore Ride-On cables, you might want to go out and buy yourself a set right away because they're going to disappear from stores, a lot like Twinkies, uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, now, the reason why... Now, first of all, let's go back a second before we talk about the reasons, uh, because I think that, that the reasons that they're leaving now are similar to things that have happened in the past. I remember when Gore Ride-On cables first hit the mountain bike market in the early 90s and they were all the rage uh they were they were you had to have it on your mountain bike because uh it allowed your shifting just to be that much quicker that much smoother but gore left the industry in 2001 and then came back to the industry with both road and mountain bike cable sets in 2007. unfortunately the price point of the cables uh, I think is what probably did the company in. It seems like they just simply weren't able to gather much original equipment spec. In other words, uh, being specced on, on brand new bicycles that you would purchase in the store and uh, their share of the aftermarket industry uh, or replacement parts for your bikes simply wasn't large enough for them to sustain the manufacture uh, and the infrastructure for Gore Ride-On. So definitely going to miss the company. Certainly going to miss our friend Lois, who really was the face and the brains behind uh, Gore Ride-On. Uh, uh, but I'm going to keep riding my Gore Ride-On cables until they wear out because they're really great. So uh, thanks for the ride, Gore. It was great to have you along and you will definitely be missed. Well, it's been a while since I've had the opportunity to talk to you about news. And that means, unfortunately, I've got a couple, well, a few uh, product recalls to tell you about. I'll go br briefly through each of them. And of course, there's links in the show notes, but wanted to make sure that you're aware of each of these. The first is the Cat Bike Musashi Recumbent Bicycle. Uh, the manufacturer is Big Cat Human Powered Vehicles of Winter Garden, Florida. There's a problem here with 2010 Cat Bike Musashi Recumbent Bikes. The problem here apparently is the frames can crack uh, and you can imagine what kind of a problem might occur if that was the case. I don't think I have a ton of recumbent riders on the Fredcast, but I know that we at one time, if many of you remember, we used to do a whole segment just on recumbent. So if you've got one of these, go ahead and check out the link. It'll give you all the details that you need to know. Next up, um, about 400 uh, bike brakes from E, that's double E, Cycle Works uh, of La Cañada, California. Uh, the problem here is a recall involving the E, that's double E brake, aftermarket brakes sold between September 2008 and March 2011 for use on adult road racing bicycles. So this is something that might uh, affect some of you. And these are pretty pricey uh, brakes here. 570 to $590 for a set of brakes. Problem here, the bridge of the brakes could crack and that might pose, you can imagine, uh, quite the problem for you. So once again, check out the show note. Next up, this was a big one. Specialized recalling uh, a number of bicycles. These were, and so listen up on this one because this could affect some of you. Uh, 2008 and 2009 models of both women's and men's Globe model bicycles. And that includes the Globe Elite, the Globe Sport, the Globe Sport Disc, the Globe Centrum Comp, the Globe Centrum Elite, the Globe City 6, the Globe Vienna 3, 
the Globe Vienna 3 Disc, the Globe Vienna 4, Globe Vienna Deluxe 3, Globe Vienna Deluxe 4, Globe Vienna Deluxe 5, and yes, of course, the Globe Vienna Deluxe 6 Bicycle. The problem here, actually, Specialized has received four reports of the front fork breaking, uh, and that is definitely something you don't want to happen when you're out riding your bike. Uh, about 12,000 bikes involved in that recall. And finally, a little bit of a smaller recall, but still fairly significant, about 3,800 bicycles for Bike Friday. Specifically, these are the ticket folding bicycles. That's T-I-K-I-T, -I -I the ticket bicycle. And the problem here is with the handlebar stem that could break uh, when you are riding the bike. And they've, they've gotten about six reports of handlebar stems that have broken. Now, these are ticket folding bikes with a 16-inch wheel sold in a variety of different colors between two th January of 2007 and September of 2012 for between $900 and $5,000. A bit of a spread. Um, so go ahead. Once again, all of the links to the CPSC or the Consumer Product Safety Commission's uh, uh, announcements on each of these four recalls are on the show notes. So just head over to thefredcast.com and look for the show notes for show number 198. And by the way, when we talk about show notes, uh, at one time I had a separate section of the website for show notes, uh, and then I folded them into the individual blog post for each show. So just look for the blog post for show number 198, and that's where you will find the links to each of these recalls. The sounds that you're hearing are from a video that was taped by uh, the founder of Training Peaks, Dirk Friel. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk to Joe Friel later on in the show, so it's coincidental that we've got Dirk uh, and his video here on this episode of the show as well. This is a nice Sunday bike ride for me. But what you're listening to is the audio that goes along with a video that Dirk Friel shot just outside of Boulder, Colorado, uh, as he was out riding on a nice Sunday morning in September. Okay, thankfully the noise is gone. But imagine uh, if you haven't seen the video, and about 460,000 people have by now, uh, imagine two cyclists riding single file way to the right uh, of the road. As a matter of fact, to the right of the white line where there's almost, there's like no shoulder, maybe a few inches. And they're riding in that few inch space in order to allow this driver to pass. And instead, the driver simply stays behind them and just lays on his horn, as you heard there in that audio piece. And it really was, well, I mean, annoying uh, to say the least. Well, now Dirk and his riding partner did not initially uh, report this incident to police. Instead, uh, they simply posted it up on YouTube. And I guess perhaps because of uh, who Dirk is and the notoriety and, and the uh, uh, popularity that he has as a result of uh, founding Training Peaks, a lot of people saw this video. And eventually, uh, the video did make its way into the hands of uh, the local constabulary. Because of the quality of the video, they were able to make out the license plate number of the vehicle and eventually track down the driver, one James Ernst. 
age 75, who was driving that SUV behind Friel and his riding partner and honking nonstop without ever deciding to pass them, although there were plenty of opportunities to do so. Well, as a result of the police getting a hold of this video, Mr. Ernst was charged with three separate counts related to uh, aggressive driving, including a misdemeanor harassment charge, uh, as well as a couple of traffic issues, driving too slowly. And and I've never heard of this one. Uh, I, I wonder if I've ever been guilty of it in the past. Inappropriate honking. We'll see where this case goes and whether or not Ernst uh, eventually uh, has to pay any kind of restitution uh, for his activities on that September day. But I bring it to you because it points out a couple of, of important lessons for all of us. First of all, we're talking about the area Longmont, Boulder, Denver, Colorado, which is well assumed by a lot of people to be a very bike-friendly, cyclist-friendly community. And yet you have a situation like this occurring where uh, literally just a, a week later or a short time later, a similar situation happened. Uh, driver harassing a group of cyclists, eventually one of them getting knocked to the ground and the bike getting driven over. Uh, it points out that even in a place like Colorado, where bikes are commonplace, on the roads, and so many people have a very outdoor, active uh, lifestyle that even in a place like that, something like this can happen. But it also points out something that I've become a firm believer in, and that is making sure that you can document things that happen to you out on the road, uh, and then going back to the authorities with that documentation, a photograph, a video, even an audio recording taken right at the time. Uh, those kinds of pieces of evidence could be very, very helpful, especially if you end up in a situation with law enforcement who may not be, uh, well, let's say sympathetic to cyclists. Anyway, we'll let you know where this goes. Kudos to Dirk for his excellent video, uh, for documenting it, and uh, hopefully Mr. Ernst uh, will uh, see some punishment here soon. Oh, by the way, I don't think it'll surprise you for me to let you know that uh, there is a link in the show notes to where you can uh, watch this video for yourself. It's on YouTube. Um, you can be one of the 460,000 plus people who have seen it. If you're like me and you have ever uh, been to a city that has a bike sharing program, you will probably be like me and become one of its biggest fans. I love bike sharing. I've used it in a lot of different cities and I just think it is fantastic. Well, Look out, San Diego, or future visitors to San Diego, because it was recently announced that Miami-based Deco Bike is going to be uh, the company that will begin a new bike share program in the city of San Diego, America's finest city, uh, sometime in 2013. Now, if you haven't heard the name Deco Bike before, uh, Deco Bike operates the bike sharing systems in Long Beach, New York, Surfside, Florida, and Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, city officials talked to a number of different companies eventually choosing Deco Bike. And what's great about this system is it is expected to be one of the first in the nation here in the United States to operate without the use of public 
funds. So that is a great thing for those of you in San Diego. We all know that California is a bit cash-strapped at the moment, so knowing that they're not using public funds is a great thing. Uh, The original plan called for about 1,800 bicycles and about 180 stations. They haven't quite finalized the contract or uh, the locations of those stations, so that information should be forthcoming. This is great news for those of you in San Diego, and I know that San Diego is one of the United States' most popular tourist destinations, so this gives uh, visitors to America's finest city uh, yet another way to get around uh, without using cars. So congratulations, San Diego. Bike share is a-coming. Well, in episode 195, the perhaps one of the most uh, uh, commented on, at least by my emails and voicemails, uh, episodes of the Fredcast. Uh, well, we all know what I talked about. Uh, it's sort of the, the the topic du jour anytime you talk about cycling with anybody in the world these days. Of course, uh, the doping scandals that have rocked professional cycling, specifically surrounding uh, one Lance Armstrong. Um, I wanted to bring you just a couple of updates. I'm going to be really quick here, so, so stick with me. Just a couple of updates since the last time we spoke. First of all, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, and I know I keep saying that when it comes to the Armstrong thing, but I never cease to be amazed by the people who aren't aware of this. Uh, the United States Anti-Doping Agency did release its reasoned decision and the supporting documents that go with it. If you have not read this, and if you are one of those people who called me, um, uh, who was upset because you felt that USADA hadn't presented a case uh, and hadn't presented evidence, I would strongly encourage you to download and read the reasoned decision and the supporting documents, including uh, the uh, pages and pages of testimony from former associates and teammates of Lance Armstrong. Uh, if after having read that, and if after having read Tyler Hamilton's book, uh, which was also uh, recently released. Uh, And if you still, after that, uh, believe Lance, uh, I would like to hear from you. And I will play your message, try to be as concise as you can, uh, on the show. uh, Because I think that that all of us would like to hear uh, your thoughts on that. But I will tell you, the USADA documents and the Tyler Hamilton book are incredibly revealing. Um, I read each uh, w- within one night. Uh, one night for all of the USADA documents, a long night. Uh, I spent a lot of time at Starbucks that night. And one night didn't even take that long for the Tyler Hamilton book. Uh, and for those of you who think that Tyler Hamilton made it up, um, then Tyler Hamilton, in my opinion, is one of, well, one of the best fiction creators, because of course he did write the book along with another author. Uh, he's one of the one of the most creative uh, and imaginative people on earth. But when I look at what's in the USADA report and when I look at what's in the Tyler Hamilton book, seem, they seem to match up. And so I, I tend to believe Tyler and what he has to say. Uh, as a result, I don't think it's any shock to you. I've talked to you, talked to you about this before. Uh, my confidence in professional cycling, the world of professional cycling uh, has gone down more than a few notches, uh, I would say uh, several dozen stories, uh, if you will. Meanwhile, the UCI did the right thing, finally, for once, and that was after reading the USADA decision, they upheld uh, USADA's sanction, uh, thereby removing uh, the majority of what many of us 
idolized Lance Armstrong for, including stripping him of the seven Tour de France titles. Uh, the Amori Sports Organization, ASO, the folks who uh, lead the Tour de France, have essentially decided to not have a winner during those seven years. Uh, and of course, part of the problem with that is, as we've all looked at and pointed out before, uh, many of the others on the podium and even below that in the GC uh, are either suspected or convicted dopers as well. And so that is a bit of an issue. So there's a, a dark mark on that era in professional cycling. We had uh, no winners of the Tour de France during World War II, and apparently no winners during the Lance Armstrong era as well. As a result of all of this, uh, Lance Armstrong was dropped by his sponsors, including uh, a litany of names that you all know and associate very closely with Lance Armstrong, including Trek, Giro, Nike, Radio Shack, Anheuser-Busch, FRS, Honey Stinger, and seemingly the last holdout, Oakley. Lance Armstrong uh, is no longer a member of the Livestrong board. As a matter of fact, Livestrong this week decided to drop Lance Armstrong's name from their organization. Remember, it used to be the Lance Armstrong Foundation. Lance is no longer involved with the board, and neither is his name. It is now simply Livestrong. Similarly, along the same lines, Tufts University, who at one point gave Lance Armstrong a an honorary doctorate degree, uh, which of course, you know, these honorary degrees are essentially symbolic, uh, recently decided to rescind the honorary degree that they bestowed upon Lance Armstrong at their commencement in 2006. Uh, a simple statement from Kimberly Thurler, director of PR at Tufts University, says, the Board of Trustees unanimously voted to rescind the honorary degree awarded to Lance Armstrong at commencement in 2006. While continuing to respect the significant work of the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the board concluded that, in the wake of the recent report of the United States Anti-Doping Agency and its acceptance by the International Cycling Union, Mr. Armstrong's actions as an athlete are inconsistent with the values of Tufts University. And so it goes pretty much in nearly everything in Lance Armstrong's life. As I have said before, I have great respect for what the uh, what Livestrong, nay, the Lance Armstrong Foundation has accomplished in providing advocacy and support for and on behalf of cancer victims and their families. And while we've all read that Lance Armstrong is a unique physical specimen of a human being, uh, the curvature of his back, the size of his lungs, etc., at least for me, as an athlete, Lance Armstrong is not someone uh, that I look up to or would want to model my life or, if I were younger, a racing career after. Whew. And so I think it's time for all of us to take a deep breath and step back and look at why we love bikes, why we love athleticism, why we love sports, why we love competition, why there's nothing better than being on two wheels, feeling the breeze on our face, uh, testing ourselves up mountains or in competition with others, or just, I don't know, getting on a beach cruiser and just enjoying a slow ride along a beach or on a boardwalk and just enjoying being on two wheels. And so to give you a little bit of perspective 
as we all sort of take a deep breath, put all that stuff behind us. Here is a voicemail that I received recently from listener Paul in England uh, with, well, with his perspective on what sport can be. Uh, and of course, also a little bit of a dig to us Americans. So here's listener Paul from England. Hi, David. Listener Paul calling here from England. And I just wanted to uh, just listen to your rather sad lament about the state of professional cycling. And I must admit, I'm tempted to agree with you. But I just wanted to say that here in the UK, we have been enjoying and delighting in the, the probably the perfect antidote to all of that in the form of the Paralympic Games. I don't think you'll ever see more dedicated and hard training athletes. Team spirit is just outstanding and genuine pride in every athlete is, is just unbelievable. Uh, the biggest heroes are those who give, really given their all to participate, you know, even when there's little chance of a medal. But boy, those medalists are every bit as good as their professional, highly paid uh, counterparts. And, you know, they, they sort of stand head and shoulders really above them for their spirit of fairness and gamesmanship. Uh, if you want a, an example of this, just check out uh, our British heroine, uh, Sarah Story. She's quite fantastic. And so I've got a challenge, really, which is come on, USA. You know, you're currently number six in the medal table behind Australia and the Ukraine. The UK is vying for second place alongside uh, Russia and just behind China in the medal table. So, you know, give it a go. See whether in Rio that you can get up there in the medal table. But really, I think every single athlete in those games should be awarded a gold medal just for their sportsmanship, their dedication, their hard work, their team spirit, and the delight that every single athlete shares in every other athlete there. You know, for them to just all stop and join in the national anthems when someone wins a medal is just it's so inspiring for sport so anyway that's me signing off i thank you very much it's a great show and i really really enjoy every single episode take care well thanks paul we will look forward to rio and see how the united states does in the paralympic games but thank you for providing us with that perspective uh, and for giving us the opportunity to sort of take that that deep breath uh, sort of hit control alt delete if you will and and really start thinking a little bit more about what sport and competition really should be all about. Uh, I think we could all learn a lot from uh, the Olympic and Paralympic Games in London. So thanks, Paul. Really appreciate that. And finally, in the news tonight, I wanted to update you on a couple of news stories that we've talked about here on the Fredcast before. The first one, you'll recall the story of 36-year-old Chris Boucher, a San Francisco resident who was charged with felony manslaughter uh, after he hit and killed 71-year-old Sachi Hui uh, in March. Uh, Mr. Boucher on his bicycle, uh, Hui uh, walking in a pedestrian crosswalk. Uh, and so I think you'll remember this. We talked uh, fairly uh, in depth about this case. Now, the latest update that I have on this is from September uh, when uh, Mr. Boucher went to his preliminary hearing uh, and 
uh, pled not guilty to the charges, and of course, then it will be going to trial. So I just want to sort of let you know that this uh, is proceeding, uh, and Mr. Boucher is going to be going in front of uh, a judge uh, and perhaps a jury, uh, and I'll keep you posted on how it goes. But I just wanted to give you that update on that case. Meanwhile, a world away, down in New Zealand, you will also recall another viral video. We talked about the Dirk Friel video earlier, but you'll recall the video uh, that was taken by a mountain biker um, in Port Hills near Christchurch uh, who was riding his bike uh, and was uh, asking the cyclist in front of him to allow him to pass. He, he didn't, and then there was an altercation. Uh, and as a result of that, now the, the, the person who took the video uh, was uh, Jordan Brazell, uh, and the cyclist who hit him and pushed him to the ground was Aaron Dalton. Uh, Aaron Dalton was convicted in this case and fined $750. You remember this guy. He was the one who said, quote, I don't need a lecture when I'm out on a ride. If you want to effing pass, uh, pass. If you don't, shut your effing mouth. I think you'll probably remember that video. I can, I can almost hear him saying it in his uh, 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 Kiwi accent. Anyway, long story short, the result in the case was a conviction and a fine of $750. I saw a TV report uh, on the internet where the TV reporters asked if he had a statement. And he said, absolutely. I'll give you a statement if you'll pay my fine. <laughs> At the end, the reporter said, we politely declined. So I, again, I'm glad to see justice being done there in New Zealand. It was pretty clear uh, that, that uh, having that cyclist being struck by the other cyclist was certainly uncalled for. Uh, and so it's nice to see, even when cyclists behave badly, uh, that justice is done. Hey, one of the things you often hear us talking about here on the Fredcast and uh, on the Spokesman is about how we often have the opportunity to go to industry events. And one of the big deals, especially for the media at uh, industry events, is the opportunity to get swag. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, uh, that simply means freebies, getting cool new stuff for free. Uh, and of course, uh, in some people's case, be being able to lord that over their friends. But anyway, um, swag's a great thing. We all like to get swag. We go to uh, a, a mountain bike race and somebody's giving away stickers or t-shirts. I mean, we take everything, right? Uh, or even, you know, you go to a car show or just imagine any trade show or any kind of event you go to, people are always giving things away. I mean, here on my desk in my studio, I've got a pen holder and I don't think there's a single pen in there that doesn't have somebody's logo on it, whether from my day job or from the bike industry, because people are always giving this stuff away. I've got a drawer full of USB drives with people's logos on them. So you know what I'm talking about when I talk about swag. And in the bike industry, nothing is better than getting the latest, greatest, newest products. And sometimes it's difficult if you're not working for a bike shop, working in the media, working for a manufacturer, if you're not within the industry. And that's why, despite all the press releases I get, I wanted to tell you about this new service that sounds really cool. I'm hoping that it, it turns out to be as cool as it sounds. It's called Schwagbox. That's S-C-H-W-A-G-B-O-X. It's kind of cool. It's a subscription service for cyclists. It costs about, well, it costs, it will cost $10 per month, including shipping. And every month you will get in your postal mailbox, a box of swag. According to the press release that I got, each 
box of swag is handpicked, quote unquote, by the editors of BikeRumor.com and their, still quoting, professional athlete friends to deliver the newest, best products that make cycling more enjoyable. I'm going to continue quoting here. Every month, you'll receive a thoughtfully curated selection of the most interesting gels, bars, drinks, lubes, grease, chamois cream, skincare, or other lifestyle items and surprises. This sounds really cool, and I hope that it is. I've seen other services like this in other industries. Um, clearly, right, my guess is that they're getting some kind of a sponsorship from uh, uh, the folks who are sending you these products. So it's not exactly like they're doing it just out of the grace of, you know, the goodness of their hearts. Uh, so clearly the folks at Schwagbox are probably going to be making money on both ends. You're 10 bucks a month uh, and also probably some sponsorship dollars from the folks whose products are in the box. But still, if it turns out that they're going to send you cool products, maybe worth 10 bucks a month to get the latest, greatest stuff that then you too can lord over your friends <laughs> as well. Anyway, it hasn't quite started yet. Registration is said to open in mid-November uh, with the first shipments going out in January. Uh, you can get notice of when it's going to open registration uh, and all of the info by joining their mailing list. So simply go to schwagbox.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-G-B-O-X.com. And of course, there is a link in the show notes. Now, one challenge, because again, my opinion, this could go either way. It could be either be really cool or you might feel like you wasted two lattes a month. I'd love to hear from you. If you subscribe to the service, let me know how it goes. I want to know whether or not this is something that you would recommend to other Fredcast listeners. I don't just want to you know, pimp somebody's press release. Uh, certainly, I know the guys at Bike Rumor, and, and you know, I'm happy to, to, to talk about them and, and all of that, but I want to know whether or not it's cool. Let me know, let your, and, and together, we will let your fellow Fredcast listeners know as well. So check it out, swagbox.com. And now, what I kind of have been teasing the entire show, uh, coming up, an interview with author, um, well-known author and uh, cycling coach, Joe Friel. Uh, and let me give you a little bit of a background. Uh, I've talked about this several times on the show. I lately have been doing a ton of travel for my day job. Uh, as an example, uh, I think I mentioned, I literally just got back from six straight weeks on the road. Now, I don't know about you. If you're a business traveler like I am, uh, up until recently, I found that I was not eating and making smart choices on the road. Uh, I wasn't exercising as much as I should. I wasn't, clearly because I wasn't here with the, the majority of my bikes, I wasn't able to uh, get out on my bike when I was out on the road. Uh, and as a result, uh, by the time uh, I showed up at Interbike, I felt like I was carrying a few extra pounds. And up until a few weeks ago, uh, that sort of weight gain continued. And I decided that I needed to do something about it. And I needed to make a lifestyle change to ensure that going forward, I wasn't going to continue uh, weighing what I was weighing uh, or uh, I wasn't going to continue to make those bad choices uh, when it came to food. And I recalled sitting down with my friend Jared from Jensen USA when we were at Interbike and we sat down, we had lunch together and he looked great. And I said, Jared, what, how'd you do it? And I know that Jared's a mountain biker. And he said, well, number one, it was certainly right. And by the way, Jared's got a family, young kids, several of them, including a new baby. And, you know, it's, it's tough to do a lot of working out when you're in a situation like that. Many of you know what I'm talking about. And Jared said, well, it was simple. 
mountain biking, and I went paleo. And I sort of said, oh, oh, that's very interesting, as if I knew what that was. I didn't. But I remembered that conversation when I made the decision that I had to make a change. And I did some investigation, and I found out what the paleo diet is all about, and eating paleo is all about. You can hear more about that in this, in this upcoming interview. So let me cut to the chase. It's been nearly three weeks. Uh, and uh, by now, I've lost somewhere between about 12 and 15 pounds. I feel great. I'm not hungry. I'm not craving things that I, I, I gave up. Uh, and I feel like this is a, a lifestyle uh, that I could continue for years and years to come. But I had one concern. And that concern was, am I eating the right foods to fuel my athletic endeavors, specifically to fuel my cycling? And it was then that I found the book, The Paleo Diet for Athletes by Dr. Lauren Cordain and our interviewee, Coach Joe Friel. So I'm going to let the interview take it from here. I think you'll find it interesting. And if you're like me and you found yourself uh, with maybe a few extra pounds and looking to make a lifestyle change to ensure that you don't get there again and to ensure that you can eat properly and make good choices, I think you'll find this very interesting. So here's my interview with Coach Joe Friel. I'm pleased to welcome to the Fredcast, Coach Joe Friel. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Hey, it's great to have you here. Hey, before we get started uh, talking about the real topic of the day, fill everybody in a little bit on why your name sounds so familiar and a little bit of your background in cycling. Uh, gosh, um, well, I've written a lot of books. I think is the main reason most people know who I am. I've written 12 books on training, triathletes training bible, cycling training bible, mountain bikers training bible, and total heart rate training, cycling past 50, and the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, uh, so I think that's how I'm most known. I've coached a number of top-level athletes, triathlon, uh, some road cycling, also mostly triathlon. And uh, so I'm, I guess I'm known from both of those things primarily. So you, you, one would say you definitely have some experience when it comes to endurance athletes, cyclists in, in uh, specifically, and you probably know a little bit about nutrition as well, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's come about. Kind of, uh, kind of secondhand, actually. My, my degree is not in nutrition. It's in, it's in sports science. But uh, I've just known a lot of people over the years, especially uh, Dr. Lauren Cordain, who helped write, the, who co-authored The Paleo Diet with me. And he's kind of been a uh, mentor for me over the last, gosh, I don't know, 25 years or so And and uh, nutrition. And that's what we want to talk about is your book, The Paleo Diet for Athletes, which again, you wrote with Dr. Lauren Cordain and was recently updated. And, and before we talk about the yeah. book and about Dr. Cordain, um, could you give everybody, you know, sort of that elevator pitch for what the paleo diet is? Sure. The <laughs> uh, paleo diet basically is uh, the, the concept is a return to the way our ancestors ate in the Stone Age, which is referred to as a Paleolithic period hence the name Paleo, uh, the Old Stone Age, which is before before people settled down into villages and towns, before they became farmers, before they became herdsmen, while they were still basically hunters and gatherers. As a few, Very few people on the planet today are still hunters and gatherers, but there are just a handful of people that uh, are, are known, like in oh, the, the Brazil, the, the, the deep forests and jungles of Brazil, and 
uh, and other places around the world also, where there's just a very few hunter-gatherers left. Most most of the world has moved way beyond hunting, hunting and gathering. But the concept, basic concept, is that you can you'll be healthier and uh, really, in terms of sports, perform better if you eat diets that were designed to eat. Or, or basically, we have uh, evolved to eat a certain diet. And as long as we eat that diet primarily, we're very healthy and, and perform very well. And so, and so, what does that mean? What what are what are some of the foods that that are are allowed? I know the answer to this, but the listeners might not. What are some of the foods that are allowed on a paleo diet, uh, quote unquote, allowed, and, and what aren't? Okay, <laughs> I actually kind of I, I kind of like, don't like to use the word allowed. It kind of sounds like we're setting uh, restrictions, and basically. What I find is people set their own restrictions to begin with. They disallow lots of foods to begin with. And there have been studies done how much how much variety people have in their diets. And quite honestly, people eat almost the same. Uh, it's something like, and I forgot the exact numbers. Like it's like the same 15 or 16 foods over and over and over and over all the time. So it's really not. Uh, so the issue is people already have disallowed lots of foods in their own diet. So I don't like to talk about allowing foods because actually the paleo diet for athletes we make some allowances for foods that are really not paleo because of their their benefit to uh, recovery primarily. Um, but the foods, if we talk about the foods that uh, we'd like to emphasize, like to see athletes eat the most of, it's um, uh, animal products, which would be like eggs, fish, poultry, and so forth. Um, uh, vegetables. Uh, vegetables are the most nutrient-dense foods you can eat. Uh, if you look at tables of of foods and how much, how many nutrients, vitamins, and minerals they have in them, you find that vitamin or uh, vegetables rather have more than anything else. And then uh, fruits. Uh, fruits are also a, um, uh, a rich source of nutrients for us, not nearly as much so as uh, as vegetables, but also another rich source. And then nuts and seeds and a few other things around the edges. And we, we tend to limit in this diet, and I say tend to because this is modified a bit for athletes, but we tend to limit things like grains, which would be cereals, bagels, uh, rice, corn, uh, bread, uh, those things, which, by the way, people eat. 23% of the American diet is those foods right there I just listed. That's where people get almost a fourth of all the calories they eat is from just from grains. Um, so we tend to we, we limit that, and um, we limit uh, dairy. Uh, we didn't start eating dairy until about 5,000 years ago. So we so it's, we uh, that's way after we, we actually left the Paleolithic period. It's 5,000 years after we left the Paleolithic period that we started eating dairy. So it's like it's a relatively newcomer to the to the scene. Uh, and legumes, legumes uh, or beans uh, are typically were in, in their natural state. Uh, in fact, still are in their natural state uh, poisonous. They'll, they'll cause an upset stomach. They've got what are called anti-nutrients built into them to protect themselves from animals foraging. And so, consequently, if you ate, if you found a roll of beans and ate them, you have an upset stomach at the very least. And uh, but we've now bred that out. We've you know farmers over the last actually since World War II. Before World War II, there were actually labels on bean cans that said. Uh, warning, uh, cook before you eat, eat these contents. Because we didn't cook them, you'd have an upset stomach from eating the beans. We've now managed to 
change in the genetic makeup of beans farmers have, and so we no longer have that problem with the beans, but still we're not really adapted to what the, what the bean has inside of it fully. So we tend to avoid that also. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of the foods. And, and, and a lot of the foods you've mentioned, of course, are a lot of the things that a lot of athletes eat. I mean, that's sort of, the, as you said, the staple of the American diet. And certainly, in a lot of ways, this the staple of what a lot of athletes eat. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, uh, I think all my listeners know, I do a ton of traveling for work. And I found yeah. that, that traveling for work, I was eating horribly. And over the last few months, to be honest with you, put on some pounds. And I found the yeah. paleo diet. I went on it. First two weeks, 12 pounds. Um, and I, and, and what's, what's interesting is I feel great. But then the question is, and this is where I found your book, considering all the protein I'm eating, how is it possible that I could get on my bike and go ride a century? And then I found your book. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. How did you meet Dr. Cordain and, and how did you come to write a book with him? Uh, he's, a, uh, he's a professor at uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, which is where I lived back in the uh, 70s, 80s, into the 90s. He's a runner. Uh, I was a runner. We met on a run one day up in the foothills above the, above the campus out for a run and uh, began to carry on conversations and chats and about nutrition, which uh, was his primary focus. And uh, he was just at this time, this is back in the 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, he was really just beginning to really get into nutrition, especially the paleo diet uh, from a research perspective. And uh, so we started talking about this concept of what he was working on. And basically, uh, I disagreed with him. I was very skeptical that you could possibly train um, eating that way. And uh, he assured me you could. His PhD is in uh, is in uh, exercise physiology. He assured me you could, and so basically he challenged me and said, "Why don't you try it for a month and see what it does for you?" So I decided, okay, I'll do that, and I'll just show him he's wrong. Uh, so I kind of figured I was going to have some bad training for the next month, so I started on this diet, cut out uh, grains and all those other things I mentioned a while ago, and began to eat a really strict diet. And uh, for the first two weeks, I felt pretty bad, pretty miserable. Uh, my body was going through withdrawal, essentially. The carbohydrate is very, uh, it's very addictive, especially sugar. It's very addictive. Starch is also very addictive. It's hard to let go of the starch and sugar. Your body, your mind actually craves them. Um, so anyway, I went through a rough two weeks and thought, well, this is going to show him. And then around sometime the third week, uh, I started feeling better. I didn't have the cravings anymore and and uh, I began to feel better when I was trained and uh, so I decided to try the fourth week to try just testing myself to see what would happen if I increased my volume uh, I figured that'd be an easy way of testing uh, I knew that back then that if I took my volume up very high uh, typically above 12 hours for a couple of weeks in a row, I'd start having some real fatigue problems and perhaps even upper respiratory problems, sore throat, runny nose, that kind of stuff. It's pretty typical for me. And so the third week, I took my training up to, and I forgot exact numbers about now, but something like 15 hours per week, no problems. So I decided to go another week and try it again. So I took it up a few more hours the next week. And again, I recall the exact numbers now, but I went up to maybe 18 hours. Of training and again no problems uh, no upper respiratory fatigue was not um, as bad as it normally used to be before that 
And so now he had my interest that uh, I could do this. I could train at a higher volume with less starch and less sugar in my diet. And so I began to ask him questions. Well, what do you think happened? And we started talking about all this. And so I became a convert because of him challenging me to try it out, I guess. It just, it just worked for me. You know, it's, it's interesting what you said, because the first week that I was on paleo, um, I, I've been a caffeine addict for the longest time. Um, and clearly I was a sugar addict as well, because that first week I had some really bad headaches. It was like a, like a sugar withdrawal. I mean, that's pretty common, right? Yeah, it is very much so. And, and so, you know, now I'm in my third week, I'm feeling a lot better. Uh, but then the question is, all right, great. Losing weight is what I wanted to do. Um, definitely feeling better. And this is definitely a, a way that, that I could eat probably forever. But then the question is, all right, what about when I want to go out and I want to do that endurance sport? What kind of modifications yeah. do you recommend for athletes? Yeah, um, what typically, I should explain one thing that you brought up as an interesting point. The first two weeks, you're likely to lose weight. Uh, and it may come back on, unfortunately. Uh, after the first two weeks, because what's going on is as your body adapts, uh, your carbohydrate stores begin to deplete because your body's not used to eating this way. And so it begins to change, but it's not yet fully adapted to fat, which is really what you want your body to adapt to. You really don't want your body to be burning sugar for fuel. You want to burn fat for fuel. So it's going to go through this, train, this change where um, it's not adapted to fat and you no longer give it the carbohydrate at once. And so it begins to get rid of excess carbohydrate because it can't because you're burning it off essentially, and as you burn it off, you lose water, which is not being restored because you've uh, you're not restocking those carbohydrate stores. For every for every gram of carbohydrate you store in your in your muscles, you store roughly three grams of water. And so if you give up a gram of carbohydrate, you're giving up three grams of water, so you lost four grams of weight right there, just which is a tiny amount. But it can that can be multiplied over, over into several pounds. You can wind up losing. But after a while, your body stabilizes and, and it begins to restock the water. So you may find your weight comes back up. But the other thing that changes too is you'll lose start losing some of your fat stores, which is really what you want to do. You lose some of the fat stores, and you may gain more muscle. So you may even gain more because of the protein you'll be eating, and may gain more weight because of it. So, so weight is not a perfect uh, measure of what's going on with this with this diet. It's, it's a strange phenomenon you go through your body's making lots of adjustments and it goes through all this but to answer your question well, but, before you move, before you move on, but before you move on a couple, yeah. couple points on that because i think i think they're really well taken and people need to be prepared for that uh, losing water i mean my experience has been the diet has had a diuretic effect if you will um and it's and and i've heard that yeah. from other people on the paleo diet the first few weeks it's um it's that's that's a definite uh, uh, effect. The other thing is, at least for right. me, and I'm sure for a lot of the listeners, it, it's not. I don't really care how much I weigh. I care how I look and how I feel. So um, okay. I'm already seeing a change in the way my body looks as a result of 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 eating this way. And like you said, if that means I'm gaining more muscle mass and therefore I'm gaining weight, that's fine. As long as I'm leaner, does that make sense? Yeah, you bet. That's right. That's what we all want. You know, I like to be, you want to be lean and mean, basically. You want to have uh, muscle, not fat. Fat is, has been no benefit for movement whatsoever other than to provide energy, which but even the skinniest 
athlete with the lowest possible body fat, you know, 4%. You get somebody with 4% body fat, they still got plenty of fat to do an Ironman distance race or ride a century or all kinds of things. So, um, uh, gosh, we got lots of fat on board. We don't need excess fat. Yeah, exactly. So, so all right. So now moving on, what do you recommend for athletes so that they that they do have the energy stores that they need when they go out and train, or you know they go and do that century, or as you said, that Ironman. Yeah, you bet. Now, the change you want to see happen in your body as an athlete, endurance athlete, is you want to see it preferentially use fat for fuel. Most athletes, I'm afraid, preferentially their bodies preferentially use sugar for fuel, carbohydrate, which is stored as glycogen in your body primarily. That's what our bodies tend to use for fuel. Your body uses for fuel whatever you give it the most of. So if you eat a diet which is very high in carbohydrate, especially starch and sugar, your body will want to use that for fuel. The downside of that is, um, or a couple downsides, one is if you eat excess starch and sugar, guess where it goes? Mm -hmm. It goes to fat. Mm -hmm. Um, The first place it tries to, to, to put it is into replacing any carbohydrate glycogen levels that are depleted and if that's not the case, you don't have any depleted glycogen levels at this point in time. It takes it and puts it on your belly or your hips or wherever to store it so it can use it just in case there's a, a, a famine coming up tomorrow. You'll be ready for it that way. That, so that's the body's way of dealing with excess starch and sugar. So that's no, there's no benefit to that. In terms of exercise, what we want to do is use fat for fuel instead of carbohydrate because that way you don't have to replace it. Uh, during the exercise, and you're at nearly the same level. If, if you're doing a sensory ride, for example, and your body is using carbohydrate for fuel, you've got to take in a tremendous amount of carbohydrate just to keep up with what's going on. In fact, it gets to the point that some people can't do it. Their, their guts just cannot process enough carbohydrate to, uh, to replace the expenditures. So they're forced to slow down dramatically because of that. Whereas your body is using fat for fuel, it spares carbohydrate, which is what you want to see happen. And since you've got plenty of fuel, you know, uh, one pound of fat is worth 3,500 calories. 3,500 calories is huge in terms of riding a bicycle, for example, how many hours you can ride a bike on 3,500 calories. So uh, if you do, that could be like six hours of riding a bicycle, just one pound of fat. Uh, So... That's what you want is you want your body using fat for fuel and sparing carbohydrate. And your body has to learn that. It doesn't just do that automatically. It learns it from doing two things. Number one, from eating a diet, which is higher in fat and lower in carbohydrate. It'll become better at burning fat for fuel. And second, doing long um, endurance exercise without replacing carbohydrate. So, uh, for example, I I have, have athletes finally get to the point where they can go two or three hours on a bike ride or a run without replacing any carbohydrate at all, and do fine. But we get there slowly. Some athletes, they have to have it within 30 minutes. They've got to have carbohydrate. They start slowing down. Other athletes can go three or four hours without taking any carbohydrate in, and they're fine. They, just, they have no trouble at all because their body uses fat for fuel primarily and, and spares its carbohydrate. So that's, that's how we get there, it's from our diet and from the way we fuel ourselves while we exercise. So what, what can an endurance athlete expect the first few weeks of, of starting a paleo diet um, and then getting on their bike or going on their run or going on their swim? What are they going to expect when their bodies, as you said, are so used to one way of fueling and all of a sudden we're now trying to switch them? You know, it's like, it's like switching a car from, you know, running on, on, on gasoline to running on water. Yeah, it's, it's certainly different. Um, it's kind of like, it's, again, it's an addictive 
um, process we're, we're dealing with an addiction here. Sugar is very highly addictive. It's it's, it's as, as addictive as anything. As you mentioned, a while ago, you get you can get headaches from not not uh, getting in sugar frequently enough if you're addicted to it. So your body's going to rebel. It's not going to like this. Yeah, it's probably a good idea for most athletes to uh, to start into this diet gradually. Um, you don't really wind up with all the difficulties that way, uh, the, the addiction difficulties of you know going cold turkey. Uh, so it's taking like you know, like six weeks to gradually make changes in the diet, replacing some of the starch with uh, fruit, for example, is a great change. That would be a, a change in the right direction. Instead so of coming back in, uh, or let's say that in the evening, you like to have a snack uh, uh, after supper. Instead of eating cookies, uh, get a bunch of grapes uh, or uh, some other type of fruit that you like and eat that instead. That would be a nice change. You still get carbohydrate, but it's a different type. It's slower reacting. It doesn't give that surge of sugar to your brain that is so addictive. And over time, just by making small changes like that, you can uh, gradually wean yourself away from eating starch and sugar and eating more vegetables, fruits, fats, and protein. So what do you say to kind of the, the, the lifelong tradition of uh, you know, carbo loading, the pasta dinner the night before the, the marathon or before the triathlon. What, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I don't see any problem with it. Um, you know, um, I think it's okay. And I think you may even do well with it. I think it's, um, um, maybe as much mental as physical, but just the idea that you ate carbohydrate before the race the night before may be mentally beneficial. I know of one study, for example, I just read it just the other day that showed, came out this, uh, just this year that showed that uh, eating um, a, carbohydrate, a carbohydrate meal the day before a race, in this case it was a test they had the athlete do, but it could be the same thing as a race, eating uh, carbohydrate the day before, and then the morning of, they ate carbohydrate again, and then, uh, I'll take it back, but the morning of, they ate, they ate high-fat uh, uh, feeding, then right before the the test or the race, they took in carbohydrate again, and then they went throughout the entire test without any more fuel being taken in. It was like, yeah, so they uh, they had a um, um, uh, I left out one step. They they some athletes had had, had adapted to um, to fat uh, by eating fat for a week before this whole thing, and and, and that, another group continued a normal high carbohydrate diet. The group that then did, both groups then did carbohydrate the night before the test, morning of the test, uh, they had a carbohydrate right before the test, and then throughout the test, they had no food intake of any kind. They did four hours at 65% of VO2 max, and then a one-hour time trial at the end. Uh, the What they found was that the athletes who were on a high-fat diet were, were using more fat for fuel throughout the four hours and throughout the, the one-hour test, but there was no difference in performance, interestingly enough. The performance was the same, but one group did it with, by using fat for fuel, and the other group did it with using carbohydrate for fuel. Both groups had carbohydrate the night before the test, a high-carbohydrate meal the night before the test, and both groups had carbohydrate immediately before the test. So the, the main thing, the main issue was one group ate carbohydrate for a week before, the other ate fat for a week before. And the high-fat users burn more fat during exercise. What do you say? You know, you, you look around the internet, and there are some real strict 
paleo adherence. And, and, and there could be, you know, a variety of reasons. There's, there's those with celiac disease or, or those who believe that, um, uh, you know, uh, eating a, a paleo diet uh, helps with all sorts of issues from diabetes to autoimmune disorders, etc. What do you say to the very strict adherence to paleo? Who say that yeah. you know you you are a, a, a you know you're a heretic because you allow some carbohydrates? Yeah, certainly yeah, that happens. People become can get carried away with anything. I think um, some people really stick to it very closely. Some people are carbohydrate resistant and may not know it. My um, you know I've I've known of people who have been uh, who who tested in their like in their forties and found out they were carbohydrate resistant, which means they're pre-diabetic. Uh, they're on the st- verge of becoming uh, having diet, uh, type two diabetes, and so that for that type of person, they need to be quite rigid in what they eat. They cannot be eating lots of sugar and starch. That's going to cause problems for them long term. They could wind up becoming diabetic and have lots of health problems. So I highly recommend that person watch what they're eating from that point forward. So a strict paleo is very very good for them. Other people are not carbohydrate resistant whatsoever. Um, they have no signs of of diabetes in their family history, or there's no indication that they're carbohydrate resistant themselves, so they can afford to have a little bit more carbohydrate or sugar in their in their uh, in their diet, but not very much. You know, it's still it's still not something that's healthy for us. Mm-hmm. You know, sugar and, and starch are just not healthy foods to be eating, so it's still going to be eaten with some some uh, degree of uh, concern about how much they're taking in. So, um, you know, so what I do is I recommend that people who are not carbohydrate resistant be sure they can they can use those carbohydrate high carbohydrate fuels, at, like starch, for example, after a, a long or hard workout, something which is really um, a tough session. Now is a good time to take in carbohydrate, uh, high glycemic carbohydrate. And the best source, quite honestly, is potato. That's the best source. Uh, it's high glycemic index, um, yet it's still a vegetable. So it's got uh, some good things about it. However, if somebody wants to eat some bread afterwards, um, as far as recovery, I don't see that as being a problem uh, unless they're carbohydrate resistant. Um, but in that case, I think they can probably get by with eating some bread or bagel, cereal, whatever, pasta, immediately after workout. But that doesn't mean eat it the rest of the day. That means what I tell athletes is if they did a three-hour workout and they've got three hours post-workout to eat uh, foods that are, that'll help them with recovery, which means basically starch. So that's how they can eat starch during that three hour period. Then we move back to paleo again after that three hour window is, is passed. So that, that's the way I tell people to kind of make that decision. But again, if the person is carbohydrate resistant, that's not a good idea. They can be setting themselves up for some real health problems. Makes sense. One last question for you. We're, I'm talking to you the week of Thanksgiving here in the United States. There's a big meal coming up on Thursday. And then, of course, I mean, we're just heading into the holiday season. So I don't care what holiday you celebrate. We have a lot of high-carbohydrate, high-sugar meals ahead of us. What do you recommend to people uh, when the holidays come around? Yes, um, it's tough to make changes right now. I guarantee you that. This is if you're going to decide to go on a paleo diet. Now, this is a tough dang time to do it. Uh, if you're going to parties or any place at all, family get-togethers, uh, there's going to be lots of pie and cake and sugary stuff and starches, potatoes, and uh, uh, you name it. Everything's going to be high sugar, high carbohydrate, very sweet. 
Um, and so it's, pretty, it's a tough time to try to make a, a change. So it's probably not a good idea to try to make a big change in your diet right now. I might make small changes right now. If you've already made the change uh, and you're already eating paleo, even if it's a modified paleo for for, for athletes diet, uh, just be very, very cautious with how much of the stuff you take in. Eat, you know, what I tell people is if, if you eat lots of fat and, and protein, quite honestly, if you eat lots, lots of fat and protein, you'll be satisfied. You won't be nearly as hungry and have that desire to, to take in starch and sugar. So, uh, so you know, get all the starch, all, all the fat, uh, all the protein you want to eat, um, uh, uh, during the meal, you know, eat those things first, and that'll begin to quench your, satisfy your appetite. You won't really have any strong cravings for, for all the sweet stuff that comes after the meal is over. You might still have a small piece just to make grandma happy that you didn't, you know, not eat her pie or cherry pie or whatever. But uh, you don't need to sit down afterwards then and just pick out on, uh, you know, all kinds of crap, but, you know, <laughs> all the stuff you can eat at Thanksgiving. Exactly. Makes so you just need to watch that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to be a, a tough couple of couple of weeks here for me, but uh, I can do it. I'm, I'm I'm pleased with the way I feel as a result of being on the paleo diet, um, both on the bike and off. Uh, and um, you know, as you said, I I find that, that eating uh, paleo, I'm not as hungry as I was when I was eating all that starch and sugar and processed food. So it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've been talking to coach Joe Friel. He's the author of the paleo diet for athletes. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can get it. Joe, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I hope we can check in with you again as uh, all of us uh, give the paleo diet the, a try and hopefully make it our lifestyle from here on out. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. And that was Coach Joe Friel, my interview with him earlier this week, the author, co-author with Dr. Lauren Cordain of The Paleo Diet for Athletes. I strongly encourage you to go check it out uh, and uh, go paleo, as I did. And with that, that's going to do it for this week's episode of The Fredcast. But before I go, I would be remiss if I didn't thank our longtime wonderful sponsor, Jensen USA, at jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast. Heck, Jared from Jensen inspired the feature, uh, the interview with Joe Friel in this week's show. As I mentioned to you, they're having a blowout on some amazing Shimano products. Go check that out with prices up to 80% off. And then don't forget that Diamondback and Fuji, uh, both of those road bikes, uh, and great deals on some really nice looking bikes. And of course, check them out on Black Friday for their Black Friday deals. Go to thefredcast.com and click the Jensen USA link on the right-hand side of the page or simply go to jensenusa.com slash thefredcast. Thank Jensen USA for their support of the Fredcast and thank you for your support of Jensen USA. If you've got comments about this week's show, please don't hesitate to contact me. There's a variety of different ways you can do so. First of all, I added a new voicemail button to the website, so go ahead and check that out. You can just use your your computer microphone and and leave me a message. And uh, hey, I've asked you for some comments on some things in this week's show. I'll be happy to play those messages on the next show. But if you'd like to use just a regular old phone, go ahead and give me a call on the Fredcast listener hotline at area code 661-513-FRED. That's 661-513-3733. If you'd like show notes or information about the Fredcast, simply go to our website at www.thefredcast.com. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is simply Fredcast or send me an email. The email address is thefredcast at gmail.com. 
And if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know there's only one thing left for us to do on this week's show, and that's to introduce our Podsafe cycling music for the show. And this week's Podsafe cycling music was chosen specifically for the Fredcast by IndoorCyclingMusic.com, the home of the free weekly featured track and premium members content of weekly 30 and 60-minute cardio mixes and monthly 90-minute cardio mixes to get the world moving. I use these. I download them all the time. I do use them when I'm on the road and I'm, I'm traveling and I'm going to those fitness centers. They are phenomenal. You can get more information at www.indoorcyclingmusic.com. This week's artist is Paul Van Dyke. The title of the song is Let Go. So to all of you, thanks for listening. Thanks for staying subscribed. And thanks for telling your friends about the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. It is my pleasure to bring this show to you. And I am not done yet by a long shot. So stick with us. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Fredcast. But between this show and the next, enjoy the music. But most of all, enjoy the ride. <laughs>